So uh, John's uh, first letter begins. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are a good and gracious God. We admit our sins. Forgive us of our sins. Help us to live for you and to love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how often have you said those words, I'm sorry? They're enormously powerful words, aren't they? They're words of humbling and the words of healing. I'm sorry. I've needed to learn to say those words often in my relationships with my wife and my kids and my friends and my colleagues. But I've also come to learn something about myself. It's possible to say those words, I'm sorry, and not follow through. It's possible to say sorry and even to feel really sorry in the moment, but not to change or correct anything in any lasting way. And when that happens, it can make things even worse. Words that are meant to be a humble admission of truth can become a lie, even in themselves. So uh, yesterday we looked at the importance of faith, trusting in Jesus, but faith doesn't exist as a concept all by itself. Real faith always gives birth to something else, repentance. And repentance means changing our hearts and our minds, turning our lives towards God, putting sin to death, living the new life God's given us to live. And repentance makes a real concrete difference to our lives before God and our relationships with others. Repentance is an ongoing challenge in our lives and it's intimately connected to issues of truth and truthfulness. Uh, The starting point for repentance is humbly admitting our sin because Jesus has died for us. We don't have to hide our wrongdoing or mistakes. And in fact, failing to admit our sin is the ultimate form of deception and truth to lie. So that was 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 to 10. We claim to be without sin. We deceive ourselves. The truth 
is not in us. If we claim we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. So Christians are fundamentally people who admit we're wrong. So it means to be a Christian, someone who admits they're wrong. We can handle the truth because Jesus has dealt with our sin. And we know God loves us and we know we have forgiveness in Jesus and we know we're safe, even though we're not perfect. And so we don't have to desperately run after affirmation, feeling unsafe if anybody disapproves of anything about us. We can freely admit our sin. We can face the truth. We can live confidently in him. The action of facing up to our sin is fundamental to our Christian lives. If you don't consistently come before God and admit your sin, you're actually committing the worst possible form of lying. You're deceiving yourself, but that's not the worst possible form of lying. You're you're claiming that God is a liar. It says in 1 John. Deception is the starting point point for so much manipulation. And, of course, deception is the starting point for so much abuse as well. If you confess your sins, we have a basis for living a life of truth and love, love for God and love for others. But repentance involves more than just a feeling of humility. It does involve that feeling of humility. But repentance involves a concrete change of mind and heart and life as well. Now, that can be seen in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Um, in 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul had a really fraught relationship with the Corinthian church. And at one point, he recalls um, a, a point where he actually had profound relief and comfort because he realized that there was a, a situation where there had been genuine repentance among the Corinthians. And he describes what this genuine repentance looks like. It's 2 Corinthians 7 10 to 11. I'll, I'll just read it. You can look up if you want to. He says, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regrets, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you've proved yourselves innocent in the matter. On the one hand, uh, Paul says, there is such a thing as worldly grief. There's a kind of sorrow that doesn't lead to repentance. Um, Call it the politician's apology or the the sportsman's apology. (laughs) I know someone who's been deeply hurt over many years by the behaviour of her relative. And when she she plucked up the courage to express her hurt, her relative immediately expressed really strong feelings of regret and sorrow. But really soon afterwards, the relative just kept going with the same behaviour. Seemed to assume that as long as you just express words of deep sorrow, that's enough to calm things down. Bring healing, restore the relationship, and then we can just keep going exactly the way we were going before. But that's not how it works. There was no change. It just made reconciliation harder, that kind of grief. True repentance, according to Paul, involves more than just sorrow. Paul lists a series of features that characterise the Corinthians' repentance. They started with sorrow, but didn't stop with sorrow. Their repentance involved eagerness to clear themselves. I don't think that means they were just making excuses for their sin. That would have made the problem worse. They owned up to their sin and, and visibly changed. They wanted to make sure the truth of their repentance was clear. Uh, they, they let Paul know. <laughs> their repentance involved indignation against their sin and fear of its consequences. Here's actually quite a few significant emotions that come up in, in uh, this uh, 
uh, response to the truth. They felt the weight of their sin and its consequences. They showed clearly they turned away from it. Their repentance involved longing and zeal. They longed to do what was right. They felt it, and they didn't just feel it, they did it. They, they, they had actually zeal, uh, and zeal involved being devoted to changing through concrete actions. Uh, their repentance also here involved uh, what uh, Paul calls punishment. He's probably talking about concrete steps the Corinthian community had taken to deal with a particular individual who's caused deep hurt and pain. They needed to take concrete actions there. That's so chapter uh, 2. Uh, more broadly, repentance involves dealing with the consequences of sin for our relationships. Yes, sin is and can be completely forgiven but that doesn't mean that the consequences necessarily disappear this side of heaven. Sometimes there are consequences. Deception and breach of trust have consequences. And sometimes those consequences are devastating and breaches of trust can take a really long time to heal. And there may be a need to face justice as part of that repentance. And that depends on the situation. So you might like to ask, is there a circumstance about your life that you need to repent about, especially when it comes to lies and truth? What would true repentance look like in such a situation? Because repentance isn't just a one-off act that we do when we become Christians. Repentance is a way of life. It's about being committed to the new life that we've been given, committed to walking in the truth, committed to living in such a way that our actions match our words, developing habits of living truthfully. And involves growth and change over our lives. Knowing that our faithful God is at work in us, we should expect this growth in truthfulness and faithfulness and be devoted to seeing it happen. Uh, there are challenges we face when it comes to truthfulness and repentance uh, because developing habits in these things of, of repenting is not straightforward or easy always. And especially in the post-truth world that we live in, there's lots of challenges to being truthful. There's challenges that come from our technology. Yeah, now, I know that modern communication technology isn't all bad, but it does create problems for us because it makes it harder to develop habits of truth. Um, there's information overload, the constant connection. Uh, the, it feeds into the relentless busyness of modern life. We just don't have time to stop and reflect and develop good habits. We just move on. You know, it's the next thing. The algorithms make sure there's always something more interesting, something more to hold our attention. You know, the, the doom scrolling as we just keep going. And in fact, you know, the social media platforms do work hard and relentlessly to get us to develop alternative and destructive habits. Uh, they, it's well known, they use the science of addiction. They want to keep us hooked with a little dopamine hits. That's just what they do. They entice us with the exciting prospect of being able to act as a mini PR company every day, giving us tools to manipulate our own image and constantly spin false narratives about ourselves. Why are they doing that? Not because they're they're the most evil person in the world because they want to make money and that's how money works. They've got to keep, they've got to keep us. We, we, we feed them um, and so they've got to keep us hooked. That's what they're doing. There's also challenges that come from our institutions. Uh, what I mean by that is structures of society with agreed rules, government, families, the media, religion, science, business. Institutions are an essential part of the, the glue that binds our societies together, but our institutions have all sorts of truth problems. If we live in this world and our fallen institutions, what we can do is we can pick up habits from those around us. Um, as, as we can easily pick up habits to accept things that shouldn't be acceptable, 
to overlook or excuse lies or deception in the name of something greater. You can see it happening in workplaces. You can see it happening uh, in, in uh, families. You can see it happening even in churches. And we need to be very careful. Deception is, is uh, often part of the air we breathe and we uh, need to, to be repenting at the institutional level. There's challenges that come from our culture, uh, which I just talked about in the last talk, you know, trained from an early age to think of ourselves as defined by our desires. And in that view, what matters most is authenticity. Um, and authenticity literally means being, you know, committed to actually being real and being truthful. But often in our world, what authenticity means is being just true to yourself. It's different to integrity. Integrity means admitting there is that objective reality outside ourselves that might criticise us, that might cause us to change. Integrity means being honest enough to admit that our, our desires at the moment might be wrong. But authenticity, on the other hand, often just means being true to ourselves and our own desires. The culture in which we all swim is, is that interested in your truth and that can steer us away from uh, developing habits of uh, truthfulness. There's challenges that come our way from the way our minds have been shaped by the way our world thinks about truth. Um, you know, the idea of relativism, the idea that there's no objective, objective truth, just different perspectives. What's true for you is fine as long as it's you know not true for me. I think um, uh, you know we, we were just uh, you know, talking about that with um, sometimes the apathy of, of young people. I don't I don't care. This is about me. It's not about you. Uh, there's another way of thinking that we've been influenced by, which we might not actually realise is quite so strong, but is actually huge. It's called pragmatism. Uh, that's actually a philosophical idea that's uh, highly affected uh, modern psychology, but a whole the, really the way that we think. Um, pragmatism encourages us to think about our lives and also our words in terms of goals, in terms of results. So life is all about what do I want to achieve? What do I want to sort of you know, set? And so we use our words as, as tools to do that. So what are words for? Words are there to achieve goals. So it doesn't matter whether it's objectively true, whether we're actually speaking the truth. What matters is whether words are effective. Are they effective in achieving our life and relationship goals? So all that matters, to, to quote the title of the, the sort of the quintessential original self-help book, Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. That's how we use words, and that's huge in our world, and that's how we often think. Uh, and so that moves us away from actually thinking in terms of actual truthfulness of our words. Uh, and developing habits of integrity and truthfulness just isn't a priority. And underlying all of this is challenges that come from our hearts. And you know, I've mentioned abuse a few times, and I'm sorry if that has actually led to you thinking uh, on um, hard lines, but I want to say, and I want to say it to you as a church and you as a church community, that abuse is terrible. It's awful. And abuse is often intertwined, usually is, with a failure by individuals and families and institutions, including churches, a failure to value truth and repentance. And not just cases of serious abuse, actually deception is ingrained in our very hearts and our relationships. That's why it's important for us to think about our churches and our communities, not just in terms of abuse, but more generally. How can we develop communities of truth? How can we think in terms of uh, being a community of truth? 
I've got so much encouragement from you over this weekend. Uh, I'm not speaking to you as if you know, I'm coming in and saying, oh, you're a terrible community. This would be really great. But how can we think about this even more? Um, you know, Christian community is a wonderful privilege. Uh, during COVID, you know, the COVID-19 lockdowns, you know, it was great that we could do online stuff, but it's really just a pale shadow of actually meeting together in Christian community. Uh, a necessary for an emergency situation. But Christian community is about being together, um, relating to one another. And I'm actually speaking to people who know that because I can tell you know that because you come here. <laughs> That's, so um, uh, this is not a, you know, if, if I wanted to say, oh, you, you should be doing this more, well, you're doing it, so great. Uh, church is the body of Christ speaking the truth in love to one another. It's about relationships, brothers and sisters in Christ and fellowship with one another, love. And within the context of those loving relationships, we have to speak the truth in love to one another. Um, the truth in love, uh, speaking the truth in love, I think really echoes what we learned about from the Old Testament, the chesed and the emet, uh, speaking the truth in love. Um, another word for, for um, love uh, or chesed is actually loyalty. Uh, God is sort of loyal, not in the sense that he's some loyal follower of us, but that he is loyal to us and his, and his commitment to us in our relationship. Loyalty is a great thing. It's about love and personal commitment for those in fellowship with us. The biblical word chesed is broader than our English word loyalty. It's not just something that an inferior shows to a superior. Loyalty is something that God displays to us. He shows commitment, loyalty, love, chesed to those he's committed himself to. And loyalty is important for church communities as well, as we are committed to one another and we are, we are loyal to one another, committed to one another in genuine love. We need that love and loyalty. I hope you agree with that. But there's also something very important we need to remember about loyalty. That, that is, loyalty is not, in a Christian community, is not a noble ideal that stands all by itself. It doesn't exist all by itself. You can never insist on loyalty full stop. Loyalty must always go together with truth. We need our communities to be permeated by truthfulness and faithfulness alongside and working together with love and loyalty. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he talks about love, and he says, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And so alongside a culture of love, at the same time as that, and together permeated with it, we need a culture of truth. Because if we don't do that, then what we might call love or loyalty can simply become an excuse for small tyrants to get their way. And that's terrible, isn't it? Love or loyalty without truth is disastrous for individuals, for relationships, for communities. So finally, I want to suggest some practical attitudes and practices that we can adopt. I'm sure you actually are adopting as Christian communities now, I feel like I'm preaching to the choir, but I'll say it anyway. Things to, to nurture and support a culture of truth alongside a culture of love. We've already explored that, the importance of repentance, admitting when we're wrong, owning up to our sin, feeling its weight, being committed to change, being ready to face any necessary ongoing consequences. Repentance is really important for the Christian life, and it's not just for individuals. It's really important for Christian communities to nurture a culture of repentance. As God's word is true, we should expect his word to expose our sin and impact our lives. 
So all of us should expect each other at times to be admitting that we're wrong and willing to forgive and willing to seek restoration as others repent. And uh, communities that don't nurture a culture of repentance are communities where people are afraid to admit where they're, admit where they're wrong. And so I can't admit I'm wrong because someone might think badly of me. The communities where everybody needs to look good, where people fear that past mistakes might be used against them, where problems fester rather than being exposed and dealt with. And leaders are very important in seeing a culture in any community. So support your leaders in this. I'm sure they're doing it. Leaders need to lead by example when it comes to setting a culture of repentance. So if you're a leader in any way in church here, whether it's the staff or whatever you're doing, uh, you'll make mistakes. And that's inevitable. When you realise you've made a mistake, especially if it's a mistake that's hurt somebody, you need to make sure you react well. Reacting badly involves things like just forgetting it and insisting that others do the same. Let's just forget about that. Or becoming really defensive or requiring forgiveness from others. Oh, you just have to forgive me. Or covering it up. Or blaming the circumstances or changing the narrative so it actually doesn't seem so bad, so you've got a different sort of version of the story. Reacting well means the opposite, actually repenting. The more you repent as, as a leader, the more you'll help to set a culture of repentance. Communities are built on trust. Uh, but we can't just go around insisting that everybody in our community must, just has to be more trusting. You know, everyone's just got to trust people more. We, we trust people who have a demonstrated history of being truthful and faithful. You see the Old Testament, it's pretty big. There's a lot in the Old Testament. A large part, you could almost summarise the Old Testament in some way as God demonstrating how trustworthy he is. Uh, so he does it. He demonstrates the ultimate example, and he calls on us to trust, New Testament too, of course, to trust him for our life and salvation. And the same should apply to our own Christian communities. The more that we develop habits of truthfulness and faithfulness, the more we'll help to develop communities of trust. And again, that's really important for leaders. If you're a leader, you know, if you're just someone who's in the habit of forgetting promises or saying things that aren't quite true, you'll actually do a lot of damage to your community by undermining trust. But if you nurture habits of truthfulness and faithfulness, you go a long way to building a community that's committed to speaking the truth in love. And sometimes that, that, that's, that's actually why, uh, in certain circumstances, we have those kind of formal commitments. Trust and truth um, are enhanced by formal commitments, well thought, thought through, clear, objective, normally written down, um, can be just really helpful, um, especially with matters that involve you know, relationships of power or authority or finances. Um, they're, they're good things. They include things like, you know, you can have group membership expectations at the start of the year where you just set it out or um, team job descriptions or policies, procedures, those kinds of things. Yeah. Formal commitments just help to provide a clear record of the promises we've made to each other so we don't rely on assumptions or unvoiced expectations or faulty memories or sinful attempts to manipulate either. When done well, formal commitments just help us to get on with the business of loving and trusting each other. Because we all know where we sit, where we stand, without having to be worried or confused about what we've committed to each other, what we can expect from each other. Now, of course, formal commitments have a, a danger, and there's a real danger, and that is legalism. Now, legalism comes when we forget that truth and trust should go together with love and commitment. If we get to forget the fact that we're to love one another, then the formal commitments we've made can just become, everyone just gets obsessed by, you know, the contract or whatever it is, and be excused to 
also for to lazily or greedily get our way by insisting on the letter of the law. But that's not the fault of formal commitments themselves. It's a problem in our hearts. You can't just blame the existence of formal commitments. And if you do, you can end up excusing sin. Formal commitments, you know, you don't want to go around making formal commitments everywhere, but in important circumstances, they're not the enemy of relationships. Sin is the enemy of relationships. And formal commitments can enhance relationships by providing clarity. And if you don't believe me, think about one of the most intimate relationships we can have with another human being. That's marriage. What, what is marriage? Christians understand from the Bible that formal marriage vows, um, and a vow is actually different to a statement of how wonderful you make me feel. It's actually it's called a vow because it's a commitment. A couple pledges in front of witnesses and before God to be committed and faithful to one another in key well-defined areas of life um, for the rest of their lives in good times and bad. And that provides a powerful bedrock for the relationship. And those that, that sort of drift into a marriage with a de facto marriage or whatever it is, you know, saying, you know, you kind of sort of come down on everybody in our world like a ton of bricks, but go, actually, the formal commitment is under God the way that God has designed it to work. And just as formal commitment lies at the heart of Christian marriage, so formal commitments can be valuable for our Christian community. So, you know. This is kind of a bit of a defence for paperwork, <laughs> but I'm only I'm doing it because it's, it's an important thing to think about. Sometimes we can react against formality and structure because we've been captured by the assumptions of our culture. You know, our culture places such a high uh, value on inner feelings and authenticity that they're pitted against structures and, and that sort of thing. Um, but uh, it, it's not necessarily a biblical view. We work together by making promises to each other, and some of them are formal. And we also need to take sin seriously. As Christians, yes, we certainly believe that the Holy Spirit makes a real difference to our lives and our communities. But we also believe that sin is an ongoing reality for us all. So when it comes to our Christian communities, we should expect that we would take an approach that assumes that there'll be sin in our church and put in place good accountability structures. Sometimes we, we can, as Christians, I'm not talking about you guys, I'm just saying we can take a, a bit more of a naive approach that we don't take sin seriously enough and neglect to put those things into place. Sometimes we can believe that accountability structures, you know, just completely undermine love and trust, but that's wrong. If we believe that sin's an ongoing reality and that it's not always obvious, then we can put those structures into place. It's the, Paul, the point Paul makes in 1 Timothy chapter 5 where he talks about accountability structures for elders and taking that seriously. It doesn't undermine love and trust, it can enhance it, especially when relationships of power are involved, uh, where there's authority, responsibility, leadership, influence, and money. And so those structures that don't concentrate power too strongly in the hands of an individual and feedback and review and clear and obvious channels for reporting wrong behaviour in a safe way and fair procedures for dealing with complaints and systems for financial accountability, those things are important. None of them will ever be perfect, but they matter. And if they're done well, they'll help to enhance love and trust by providing that helpful background to our relationships. And as I said, it's especially important for preventing abuse in Christian communities. Because in situations where everyone just trust everyone else, without any structures or expectations of external accountability, abuse can thrive. When it's all informal, where it's all undefined, 
Well, abusers will find ways to manipulate impressions, to hide their abuse or escape its consequences. And even people who aren't actually abusers, but people who aren't malicious or, or intentionally abusive, can use truth test, uh, twisting techniques subtly to get their own way and can cause all sorts of damage to relationships. And so those structures of accountability can help. Um, but that doesn't mean, you know, sin can be completely forgiven. Certainly in the Lord Jesus Christ. But again, the consequences don't necessarily disappear. And so taking those consequences seriously is one of the things that can need to happen. And Paul talks about that at the end of 1 Timothy chapter 5 uh, when it comes to elders at that point. So that's not just a defence of paperwork. It's just a defence of in terms of truth and trust. Take those things seriously. Not so seriously that you become legalistic, but taking them seriously. So to finish, I just want to remind us, though, of where we've been. Yesterday we saw that we have a serious truth problem. But the Bible has an answer. It's not a self-help solution, but it's an answer that goes to the heart. It's the gospel. The gospel, the message about God's son, Jesus Christ. And we looked at some really important parts of the Bible that address that issue of truth directly. We looked at key parts of the Old Testament that show us we've been living in a post-truth world for a very long time. We've seen God's faithfulness, his truthfulness, bounding, abounding in chesed and emet. He is loyal and reliable, loving and truthful. He's committed to his people and faithful to his word. And in the midst of his holy and right judgments against our sin and our lies, he's promised to rescue us. We looked at Jesus full of grace and truth in the Gospel of John. And we saw how clearly Jesus shows us that truth most clearly. The key to understanding this truth lies in what was central to Jesus in this world, his death on the cross for our sins. And John's Gospel calls us to believe in the true facts about Jesus, to believe in the reality that those facts point us to, but to believe in the promises of God's eternal life and to trust in the person of the Lord Jesus. Not just out there, it's about him. We looked today at Ephesians where Paul paints a rich picture of how truth can and should operate among us. The gospel is the word of truth that stands at the heart of our Christian community. And as we speak the truth in love, we can expect God to grow us together to see those around us transformed. Today we've looked at repentance, both individual and as communities. And the biggest principle in it all is truth is personal. And I don't just mean that truth is a matter of our own opinion. What I mean is truth is a person, Jesus Christ. And can you imagine what it would be like for us to consistently speak and live according to this truth? Can you imagine the effect on our post-truth world if Christians both individuals and communities, were so gripped by the truth of Jesus Christ that we were committed not only to believing the truth but to taking lies seriously in our own lives, to turning away from lies daily, developing lasting habits of faithfulness and truthfulness, navigating the complexities of life while faithfully and truthfully speaking this message of truth and life to others and deliberately creating communities increasingly committed to truth. Actually, if you're a Christian, you don't have to imagine that. <laughs> I've seen it here. You, you know it. If Jesus has already made a massive difference in your life and in the lives of your fellow believers. He continues to give you what you need to speak and live this way. If you look closely and prayerfully at yourself and other people at your church, and I encourage you to do that. 
you'll notice the Holy Spirit making a profound difference in your life and the lives of others. That's what Jesus does. And it's a cause of great thanksgiving. But truth is also an ongoing challenge for us. And if our world ends up continuing to move further along a trajectory of post-truth craziness, it'll become even more challenging for us. That's why we need to keep on clinging to Jesus and holding on to the word of truth. It's why we need to keep coming back to him, to ask him to rescue us and transform us as we navigate this post-truth world, to give us the strength to speak the truth in love among ourselves and to others and to take those challenges of living truthfully and seriously uh, and, and truthfully more and more seriously. And I can personally attest to the difference Jesus has made in my own life in this post-truth world that we live in. I came to trust in Jesus, I said it before, in my early teenage years, and I've always found him to be faithful. And writing the book has just been really challenging. It's the most challenging book I've ever written. Not so much because the ideas are challenging, but because it's made me revisit times when I've been less than truthful and faithful. But I can testify that Jesus is faithful and he continues to forgive and change me as I've sought more deliberately to turn to the truth and develop those habits of truthfulness and faithfulness. He's continued to be faithful and it gives me joy in relationships, peace in suffering and hope for that time when Jesus returns and the truth will be made clear to all. So I'll finish with Revelation chapter 21, verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And the word emet comes out in another Hebrew word, which is directly related to it. It's the word Amen. Truly. Amen.